You may not believe it, but I had some troubles in grade school. I went to George R. Martin's school in Seekonk, Massachusetts, and a couple of instances stand out in my mind that demonstrate some of the trouble that I had as a kid. I'll remember one day, we were all lined up, I was in fifth grade, lined up to leave the school. So we would all line up at the edge of the class, and other classes around would be lining up as well, and I, and I was at the front of the line that day. And Gustav, across the hall, older kid, sixth grade, said he was going to give me a beating. So I said, all right. So fifth grade is dismissed before the sixth grade, so I went out, and I was just heading home. I was walking, had my backpack on, I was walking out, and he, and he chased me down. I just kept walking, and he kicked me. Well, that didn't work out so well for him. So I turned around, and I gave him a couple of belts to the head, and then, you know, the crossing guard comes over, and I get in trouble. The next day, I was suspended. I had to go see Mr. Searles, and Mr. Searles and my father in the same room. Not a good thing. I can still uh, I can see his face and his gestures with his devil horns pointing at me, and, and he would get up on his toes. He'd be like, Robert... You need to turn over a new leaf. And like, that's not a good experience. Thinking, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I get out in the car, and on the way home, my dad's like, son, I already went to school. I did my time at school. I don't want to go back. <laughs> I get it. I wanted to do better. Who wants Mr. Searle's pitchforks or horns pointing at them? And who wants their dad saying, I don't want to see this anymore? So I try to do better. And then there was a recess. We were playing dodgeball. And some kid, a little pip-squeak of a kid, started, like, kicking me and stuff. And, you know, when, when you do that, like, you just, it's not, a, it's not wise. So, so I ended up, you know, doing what I shouldn't have done and gave him a small beating. And then, <laughs> guess where I ended up? Dad and Mr. Searles in the office and guess what I got? The devil horns, again. And the same movements up on the toes. Robert, you need to turn over a new leaf. Man, that's, that's pretty rough. There are disciplinary measures that can reform people's behavior. These measures cannot, however, address the deep spiritual need that we are all born with. You see, friends, we're all different And we're all the same. We have personality differences and experience differences and intellectual differences and emotional differences. Yes. But spiritually, we have to understand that we were all made in the image of God. We were all made in the image of God. This is not about physical image. This is about a spiritual image. There's there's something that God engrafted into mankind during creation week that has not gone away even in the fall. There is a longing. There is a longing inside of every one of us to deal with our spiritual needs. But there's a problem. That that longing is broken. Because sin has tainted that longing. Sin has distorted our nature. And as a result of sin's distortion, 
God tells us that we are born into this world spiritually dead. That does not remove the image of God. And that does not remove this inner longing for something spiritually. It just makes us completely incapable of bringing that spiritual conclusion to resolution. We are not whole without addressing our spiritual need. People try all kinds of things to address this whole within us. People try drugs, alcohol, sex, money, leisure. They try entertainment. These things take our minds off of our emptiness for a time. And then that emptiness comes to the forefront again. And what we try to do is try to make the emptiness go away. So we feed it, and we feed it, and we feed it. But it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back. The spiritual longing sometimes is addressed through religious means. People feel better for a time when they go to church. I went to, I went to church and I felt better. But after a short while, that ceases to give the, the same filling Feeling, because church is not the answer to our emptiness. Religion is not the answer to our emptiness. Being better is not the answer to our emptiness. Soon enough, that void arises again. We need more. I draw your attention to the text of Scripture in Luke 24, which we already read via our responsive reading. We will read again. Now, Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. I want to convey two important concepts from this passage. First of all, people tend to look for answers for the most important issues in the wrong places. People tend to look for answers to the most important issues in the wrong places. Verses 5 and 6 again, he says, As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Do you remember that he told you this? Don't you remember this? This was not new information. People still in this day, people today, are still looking for something to save them, but they are often looking in areas that supply inadequate, non-transformative, non-life-giving answers. Notice what the angels say in verse 5. 
why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, interestingly, the New American Standard Bible gives us a little more clarity about what this says in the original language. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? The concept there is a singular, the one who is alive. Why do you seek the one who is alive among the dead? Why do you seek for that which gives life and is life and produces life and sustains life and saves life from dead things? We consider realities of life. A surgeon can help you with a torn rotator cuff. A psychologist may be able to help you cope with mental distress. A support group may be able to help you deal with trauma. But none of these, none of these can address your deepest, most important spiritual need. There is no surgery to deal with your spiritual life. There is no talk therapy to deal with your spiritual life. Even gathering together among people that are worshipers does not deal with your spiritual life. We can't give you the Spirit. We can't give you life. Only the living one can. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? Why do you go to the tombs to find life? Why do you go to all these resources that the world has to offer to get spiritual life? They don't have spiritual life. They can't offer you spiritual life. Only Jesus can do this. Why do you seek the living among the dead? We all recognize that our lives keep coming back. What is life about? What will ultimately fulfill me? What do I need? Don't seek for what you need from sources that can't provide you that need. It's only found in the person of Jesus Christ. The disciples came to know this. We're going to come right back to this concept in a moment. There's a second concept from this text that's very important to help us to understand it well. The second concept is this. Jesus had told his followers about what he had to accomplish. Jesus had already told his followers what he had to accomplish. And this is what the angels are reflecting to them as they're in this tomb. As they're looking for Jesus, the living one, among the dead. And they don't see him. And they're perplexed. And they don't know what to do. And the angels remind them of what God's word says. Yes. But even more so, what Jesus had said. When Jesus says it, it's God's word, right? Yes. But he's reminding them of what they heard with their own ears from the mouth of the one that they were coming to look for. So the angels say this in verses 6 and 7, as we've read already twice or three times this morning. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? Listen, what did he tell you? Verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and must on the third day rise. And they remembered. Notice the word must. It's only used once, but it governs all three of those verbs, right? It had to happen. It's not an option. Jesus told them, this is the will of the Father. I must drink this cup. Had to happen. So, what had to happen? As you read through the Gospel accounts, you can see these musts being accomplished. Now, when I say the Gospel accounts, we're talking about Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. 
Jesus must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Judas betrayed him, betrayed Jesus. Jesus was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was sentenced. And then uh, the next phase of what Jesus said must happen took place. Jesus must be crucified. You can read about the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was gruesome as the Lord Jesus became sin for us. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Jesus became sin for us, though he himself knew no sin. God made him, turned him into, put on his account sin for us. So that we, those that look to Jesus, might become the righteousness of God through him. That's called substitution. Jesus willingly laid his life down as a substitute that rather than me suffering the right judgment for my sin, Jesus stood in my place and took my judgment for me. This must happen, he says. I must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and I must be crucified. Why? Because I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus' job. From before the foundation of the earth, Jesus determined he would follow the will of God to lay down his life. And the third concept that he says must take place, Jesus must, on the third day, rise. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we read it three times this morning already here in Luke 24. Why did he need to do these things? Why the must? Why must he be delivered? Why must he be crucified? Why must he rise? First of all, to fulfill Scripture. Because God said it, it must come to pass. God is not a liar. God is not a man that he should lie. Instead, everything God proclaims is not only truth, but comes to fruition. Everything. And so the first reason why Jesus must suffer these things is to fulfill Scripture. Secondly, to give spiritual life to those who trust Him. To give spiritual life to those who trust Him. Remember, we're spirit beings. We're spiritual. We're made in the image of God. We have this emptiness that can't be filled. We try to fill it here, there, and everywhere. And and ultimately, it is not filled unless God fills it. Unless God produces what only God can produce, which is spiritual life. So Jesus had to do these things so that he would then be able to grant to us the life he had in himself. This will be what we want to see from the Bible. That Jesus came to earth, was delivered, was crucified, and was raised from the dead to give spiritual life to those who believe in him. With that being said... Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Turn in your Bibles to John 14, please. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, is our text for this concept. Jesus is life. Other passages could be conveyed, and I'll just make some reference to them as you're turning. You remember that Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? Do you remember that? Jesus told us in John chapter 6 that he's the one that is the bread of life. 
in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul was writing to a church of people like us. And he said, Christ is our life. Because Jesus is life. Here in John chapter 14, maybe you're familiar with this and maybe you're not. Let's see what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am. What does it say? The life. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. If it were not so, what I've told you, I'm going away. I'm coming again. Where I am with the Father, you can be also. How do we get there? I am the way. I am the truth about this. I am the life. If you want to go to the Father where these rooms are, where these mansions are, you've got to come through me. I am life. Jesus is life. Secondly, Jesus has life. Take a look at John chapter 5 and verse 26. Jesus makes this statement to those that are conflicting with Him. He just healed a man who had been having mobility issues for 38 years. He, he couldn't move, this guy. And Jesus healed him. And the people are giving him grief. Who does that? Who wants to quibble about what day this guy that couldn't move for 38 years is healed? People that don't look to the living one for life. They look to the death for life. How stupid is that? To look to death for life. Not going to work. Look to the living one for life. Jesus has life in himself. Look what he says here in John chapter 5 and verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Jesus not only is life, He has life. He has life. Well, what does that mean? He's alive? It, says, it means more than Him being alive. Everyone there is not foolhardy enough to say, well, I see you there, but you're actually dead. There's something more to the statement than I just have for myself life. It more tells us that He is the source the source of life. He has life to give. Jesus is life. Jesus has life. Now, finally, Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. You ever had one of those longings in your heart and you try to fill it and that emptiness comes back? I want to tell you, Jesus can give you life that will fill that emptiness and the emptiness will not come back. It is a life that sustains during the days of your life and it sustains throughout eternity. This is who Jesus is. He is life, he has life, and he has life to give. We're in John chapter 5 already. Look beginning, please, at verse 21 now. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Will you read the rest of it with me, please? So also the Son gives life to whom he will. What? What? 
Will you read it again with me? So also the Son gives life to whom He will. Who Jesus decides to, He grants, He gifts, He graces life. Look a little further in the text. Look down please at verse 36. John 5, 36 and following. Jesus again is is defending Himself before a religious crowd and as well as His disciples. And He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. If we read backwards in the context, we see that He was saying, John the Baptist testified about Me. And He says, But there's a better testimony. There's a better testimony than even John the Baptist. And He had a good reputation among many. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, the way that I am living, the way that I am acting, the things that I am performing in word and deed are evidence to the fact that I am not just another person. When you see me giving physical aid to someone, it's pointing to something beyond the physical aid. It's not just so that this guy can walk. As wonderful as that is, it's something better than walking. The walking will last for how many years? There's a limited duration on that gift. I want to tell you, what I've come to give you is better than physical aid. I've come to give you life. And the works that I do are pointing to the fact that God has sent me to do something greater than your mind could ever conceive. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Now, let's, let's try to unravel that just a little bit. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17 speaks about it. He goes up with Peter, James, and John. He turns his clothes white. And I love how Mark's gospel says it. Whiter than any launderer on earth could launder it. So in other words, now this is radiating. Okay? This is not just really clean white. This is like burning, shining white. In the process of this, a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's not the first time the voice from heaven came. At the baptism of the Lord Jesus, he came up out of the water. God sends a dove. The dove comes down and rests upon him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The voice from heaven came so that the people could know this is the Son of God and there is no other. Jesus is reminding them, I want you to know John the Baptist testifies of me. My works testify of me. The Father thunders from heaven. You had never heard him before. The Father thundered from heaven. And here you are hearing his voice authenticating, I am his son. It's pretty good. Verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one. You don't have his word abiding in you because you don't have the one. The Word is around you. You've read the Word. You've you've read the Bible. But you don't have an understanding of what the Bible really does and is because you don't have the One who is the Word. He goes on. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures. You are searching the Scriptures. You read your Bible, is essentially what he says. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them... 
In them. Right here. In them I have eternal life. This is not eternal life. This points you to eternal life. In them you think you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. These are they that point you to me. If you want real life, if you want life that lasts, if you want life that is not empty, that the emptiness will not come back, you need to understand what the Bible says about Jesus. You're searching the Scriptures, but the Scriptures don't abide in you because the one who the Scriptures testify of is not abiding in you. Verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Life. Real life. Not physical life. They're alive, right? Everyone there, they have ears. They are obviously alive. Everyone in here, ears. Obviously, physically alive. Everyone listening on Sermon Audio or on YouTube or whatever other venue, you have ears to hear. You're physically alive. But if you want real life, You need the sun. The sun gives life. Look, please, at John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus paints this glorious picture of who he is and what he does. There's an imagery of the shepherd and the imagery of the door to the sheepfold. And while we'd love to really develop all of these thoughts and consider them all, we can only just touch on them. Let's just think about what this door concept is. In the midst of a wilderness or a pasture, we have a shepherd leading his sheep. And the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. There's a, there's a relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, not the hired guy. The hired guy takes care of them, but if something bad happens, they split because there's no investment there. The shepherd loves the sheep, cares for the sheep. The sheep know the shepherd. They know the shepherd's voice. They follow the shepherd. They do what the shepherd says. At the end of the day, the shepherd wants to keep the sheep safe. So there's a sheep fold. The sheepfold is basically stones built up like a stone wall and and there's an an entryway in one of those sides of the sheepfold. And the shepherd that cares greatly for his sheep will be counting them on the way in and counting them on the way out. He sits at the door and when it's time for nighty night, the shepherd that loves the sheep lays his life down between outsiders, and the sheep. I am the door. This is an image that Jesus is pointing to here, as well as him being the shepherd, he is also the door. Both of these concepts. Verse 7 of John chapter 10, please. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me... He will be saved. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved safe. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it overflowingly, abundantly, richly, now and forever. Abundant life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I 
On the other hand, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will also listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. I have power to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is letting you and I know that no one killed him. He laid his life down. This he did willingly. No one could, without his consent, kill him. He is God in the flesh. Do you not know, at this very hour, Peter, I could call thousands and thousands of angels. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. But I have something better to offer. I've got better than bread. I have better than money. And I have better than political peace. I have within myself life. I have life to offer to you. I have life that I can give you. He told the woman at the well, you'll never thirst again. I have bread to give you, John chapter 6. You'll be satiated. You'll be satisfied. He's not talking about eating something and making your belly full. He's talking about dealing with the spiritual need that we oftentimes go to the tombs. Oh, if I'll just snort this, drink this, eat this, experience and feel this. I'll go and spend some of this. I'll go and enjoy a leisurely vacation. Oh, I'll watch it on the the television. And when it's going on, you like feel kind of all right. And then the emptiness comes. And Jesus, I can fix this. I can fix this. I am the good shepherd. I've laid my life down for you. And I want to give you life. Not any life. I want to give you abundant life. Life that flows and flows and flows and flows and is inexhaustible. I want you to understand why you were here. We've all been made in the image of God, folks. Inside of you, you can fight it all you want. Inside of you is something longing for God. And you can't shut it up. You can quiet it for a little while and it's going to come back. Jesus says, I can can fill that. I can take care of that. I've done what's necessary to give you life that flows and never ends. Abundant, eternal life. Look at John chapter 3, please. We come now to a text of Scripture that you've at least heard reference to. John 3.16. Because of people putting it on their eye black at college football games holding it up on a sign at whatever football game, and then they kind of really distort it and like put some other guy 316 on it, which is disturbing. 
you've definitely heard of 316. Maybe you're not understanding exactly what is going on here, but this is another way that God tells us that Jesus is ready to give you life. He's talking to Nicodemus, a religious man. Not just any religious man. He was noted as the, in the Greek, the teacher of Israel. He is the most renowned teacher. Nicodemus comes to Jesus secretly at night. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I've been already born. I'm good. Um, I don't understand. Jesus says, unless you're born of water and spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. I have to enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? No, no. This is not a hard concept, Nicodemus. If, if you want to hear a hard concept, I could tell you that I'm in the heaven right now and I'm in front of you right now. That would blow your mind, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay? What I really want you to understand is I have something that I can offer to you that will change your life forever. You must be born again. And when he gets to the crux of it, we're at verse 16, and he makes it abundantly clear. There's no turning away without understanding what he means about being born again. In verse 16 of John chapter 3, he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal what? Life. You want eternal life. Life that lasts. Life that sustains. Life that won't be snuffed out. You want real life? Believe Christ. Christ is enough. He's enough. The Gospel of John just does it again and again and again. It is, it is glorious. You, if you don't know Jesus, read John. Read the Gospel of John. It just keeps bringing you over and over. Jesus is life. He's the source of life in John chapter 1. He is life in John chapter 1 and verse 4. He is the light of the world. You see, all through, he's letting you know, you want real life? Come to Jesus. And this is essentially how John's Gospel ends. There's another chapter after this, but in John chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31, John tells you what the Gospel of John is all about. In verse 30 it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, why aren't they written? Because there's not enough pages. And quite frankly, there's just only so much we can gather to understand the God-man. And so God limited it to the 66 books and the Gospel of John to these 21 chapters. Verse 30 again, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. <laughs> by believing you may have life in his name. You want life? Come to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are Weary and heavy laden. Come to Jesus. He's done what's needed. He is life. He has life. And he gives life. There is a longing for this spiritual life. And you and I, we can't fill this longing with anything other than Jesus Christ. You've been sitting here for about 40 minutes, I would guess, that I've been preaching if you would like to receive spiritual life from Jesus today, I ask you that you'd raise your hand. Raise your hand. There's no reason to be bashful. 
There's no reason to say, oh, I don't want people looking at me. We're not going to embarrass you. Everyone here that has this life from Jesus wants you to say, me, because they want to tell you how you can have this life. Raise your hand up high. I need this life. I want this life. Look, Look at this. I need life. Jesus offers life. This step, this step does not give you life, raising your hand. It doesn't give you life. But it's a step toward it. If you raised your hand, or if you should have raised your hand, during the last song that we sing in just a moment, I invite you to come to the front. And when we're done with our final prayer, no one's going to embarrass you. And some will come alongside of you, and they'll share with you from the Bible how you can have life today. They'll answer your questions. And today, before you leave, you can experience what so many of us have. Why this day is really just an extension of every other day that we meet. It is special, Resurrection Sunday. I'm not going to belittle it. It is awesome. We commemorate the resurrection. But next Sunday, when I get in the pulpit, you know what I'm going to be celebrating as I open God's Word? The resurrection. And the Sunday after, and the Sunday after. As long as I'm in the pulpit, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. This is just another glorious gathering to celebrate what God has done. And today, those of you that raised your hand, and those of you that should have, during this last song, come to the front, and we'll answer your questions. And if you want to know Jesus, he will bring this to a sealed conclusion. You will come today, and you'll have eternal life, and you'll leave here with that abundant life. Let's pray together. Father, you are good, and we beg of you to bring about the salvation in the lives of these that have raised their hand. We pray that they would understand clearly the gospel, embracing Jesus and having life. We pray for those of us that know Jesus as our Savior, that we would be rejoicing, that we would not short-circuit the joy that you flood into our lives, and that we would share this abundant life with others as we point them to Jesus who has and gives life. Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.